From the studios of HOME, it's Nordic on Tap. I'm your host, Eric Stavney, for this Nordic on Tap podcast of life stories, folk tales, and music of the Nordic countries, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Sápmi, and the Faroe Islands, with contributions from folks west of the Atlantic as well. Welcome to this podcast which celebrates the winter solstice, Christmas, and the longest night of the year. I've assembled some interviews and some stories that originally were broadcast on the Scandinavian Hour out of Seattle, a radio show on KKNW on weekends. In fact, we're working on a podcast about the Scandinavian Hour, perhaps uh, next in our lineup. I also had some of these stories published in the Norwegian American newspaper, The Scandinavian Hour chose to put music behind it, which would not have been my choice. I choose the music I play on this show very carefully because I want to ensure that I'm always getting permission and honoring the copyrights owned by the performers, the composers, and the studios. Speaking of music, later in the show we'll talk about and listen to two classical compositions of the same name, ones I associate with Christmas time, and the recordings are in the open domain. First, the Christmas tree story. This is Eric Stabney on the Scandinavian Hour team with a Christmas memory. A few years back, uh, we decided to get a real Christmas tree the old way, like my ancestors did, cutting it down ourselves. And I don't mean a Christmas tree farm either, but in the National Forest. We started off decked out in our hats, mittens, scarves, and heavy coats, and it wasn't 15 minutes later when we realized our mistake and pulled over. There was this flurry of hats, mittens, scarves, and coats flying over the back seat because we were all dying and the windows were starting to fog up. Somehow, in our eagerness, we forgot it would take an hour and a half to drive up to the forest. We bought our permit from the ranger station, got the map, and drove up windy forest roads to the place where there was supposed to be noble fir. All four of us spontaneously burst from the car and dove into the brush full of eight to ten foot trees. And it soon became apparent that everyone had his own idea of what the tree should look like. There were shouts, this is it, over here, and someone said, no, no, you've got to see this one. So we decided to visit each other's tree, with Carl going first. So Carl shouts, well, it's just right over here next to the clump of trees, and his voice sort of trails off when he realized what he was saying. We'd never find it. And then someone hit on the idea of shaking the tree, and we were all able to find each other in turn by looking for the wiggling treetop leader. And once we got there, we made appropriate non-committal remarks like, yes, well, there it is, and oh, huh, okay, mm-hmm. But we finally did decide on a tree, cut it down, went glumphing out with it to the road where we dropped it. And there was this little silence, I think, because we all felt bad. Here we called this furry green beast from the herd, and, and, and there was its carcass. 
But the silence continued when we re- realized it was missing a bunch of branches on one side. It was kind of ugly. My wife broke the silence, saying, Well, don't worry, we'll just put that side towards the wall and no one will ever know. And that was all we needed. We strapped the tree to the top of the car, running ropes through the side windows and out the other side. I didn't have a roof rack, so we had to make do. I remember us arriving home with cricks on our necks from hunching over to keep the ropes across the ceiling from tangling in our hair. We hauled the tree up to the living room, got it into a stand, picked off the spiders and dead twigs, and put on the ornaments and lights, and we all stood there admiring our tree. Until someone said, yes, this is a beautiful tree. However, next year, and I cut them off, I said, wait, let's not talk about next year. This is our tree this year, and, well, it gave its life for our Christmas. Think of that instead. And so that's the year we had our own Christmas tree from the forest. Even though it was a bit ugly and full of spiders, we remember instead how much it meant to have a tree we chose and harvested ourselves. Well, we still enjoy getting Christmas trees, but frankly, now that the kids are not kids anymore and have moved on, my wife and I have been using a fake one for the last few years. Don't tell anybody. So, along with the Christmas tree, a Scandinavian Christmas wouldn't be complete without the food. There's those seven kinds of Christmas cookies that the Norwegians make, such as fatiman, spritz, and sandbuckles. There's a risgrinsgrot, or risengrod, rice pudding, or maybe rummagrits, or sour cream porridge, for dessert. And then there's the lingonberries. I think of lingonberries at Christmas time in connection with Swedish meatballs, or maybe Swedish pancakes. According to the website The Spruce Eats, lingonberries are intrinsic to the Nordic diet. That emphasizes native, wild, and or foraged foods. Swedish schöttböller, meatballs, ragmunk, potato pancakes, and fried herring might be on the menu. Lingonberries belong to the vaccinium genus, a bunch of short shrubs, often evergreen, that live up in the boreal forest all the way up to the Arctic tundra. And they're eaten in uh, Baltic Scandinavia, uh, Russia, Canada, Alaska, and they're commercially grown in the Pacific Northwest. They're related to blueberries, or blåbær, also. Lingonberries are tittebär in Norway and Denmark, lingon in Swedish, lungon in Icelandic, and puoluka in Finnish. The name lingonberry originates from the Swedish name lingon for the species and is derived from the Norse lingar or heather. That makes sense, given the lingonberry plant is prostrate and lies low to the ground just like heather. Anyway, I discovered that we have a lingonberry grower in Washington State, about an hour north by car from Seattle, who supplies a Seattle Scandinavian bakery and deli. And I was thrilled to learn that this farm is in the family of Sonny Empey, or Sonny Lundqvist, the author of a book on a Finnish immigrant, The Legacy of Ida Libroanda. I know Sonny, actually, as half of an accordion duo with Leif Holmes. They play at a variety of events in the Seattle area, and boy, I miss them because this year there really haven't been very many Scandinavian events 
offered to the public. But that's not who I interviewed. It was Leslie Linskog, uh, Sonny's daughter, who tends the farm mostly these days. Uh, My wife and I drove up to the acreage near Mount Vernon, Washington, and got to see the plants themselves. I'm here in Skagit County, Washington, near Mount Vernon, and I'm here with Leslie Linskog. And um, we're looking out at some farmland here. Uh, see a lot of grass, but I see some a lot of other things. And I guess you raise lingonberries, among other things. Is that right, Leslie? I do, Eric. How much you got here? How many? How many acres? Well, our farmland is 12 acres, and we have about one acre, a thousand plants of lingonberries. Are we looking at any now? We are. They are over to the west. We've got six rows, and we have five different cultivars. Our cultivars are from Sweden and Finland, and they are called Balsgard, Ruby, Magenta, Linnea, and Ida. I know cranberries, I guess they're related. Uh, they like it kind of more wet and swampy. What, what about... Um, no, lingonberries, no, no, actually lingonberries, they are drought resistant. They don't need much irrigation. I do have the irrigation set up for all six rows, so they do get a small amount. So lingonberries are a cousin of the cranberry. They're smaller and they are a bit sweeter. They're tart. You can eat them raw and most Scandinavians love to just eat them raw, like a blueberry or a bilberry. They don't need to be cooked, but mostly are used for sauces, sauces and jams. And on top and, of your Swedish pancakes or yes, something. Yes, exactly, or waffles. Or, yeah. And jam, I guess, also, right? Jam. Jam some. Yes. And lingonberries have their own um, pectin. So when you um, make a sauce, you're actually making a jam. Oh, so it sets up on its own. You don't have to add pectin. Right, and you don't have to add a lot of sugar, which is nice, because when lingonberries are cooked, they become a little sweeter, and if you add too much sugar, it takes away that special, unique uh, sweet tartness that the lingonberry is known for. Are you like the only lingonberry grower in the state of Washington? As far as we know, yeah. As far as we Mm -hmm. know. Wow. Yeah. I know that that some people have tried to grow lingonberries. The difficulty is you need to have a pollinator. Mm-hmm. And that's what our, we have two pollinators uh, mixed in with our lingonberry rose, and that's our magenta and our Linnaeus. Yeah, we saw some honeybees earlier. Oh, you're talking about like cross-pollination. Yes. Is there a market for lingonberries? There definitely is a market in the Scandinavian communities. Right now, we are not promoting our berries, I would say, because we're not quite to our peak of growth potential on our farm. We're getting there. We're having more people find out about our farm and want berries, so we selectively are choosing who we are selling to. We have the Bean Bakery in uh, Fremont, right. and Scandinavian Specialties in Ballard. Oh, really? And then, uh, most recently, we have a brewery in Bellingham that wants to make a lingonberry brew. I have heard that Bean Bakery buys as much as they can from you. Yes, they do. That's yeah. what's fun about growing lingonberry is that our private customers, our bakery and Scandinavian customers, 
they get so excited when it's lingonberry season. Yeah. And and that's what's fun for us is to, to see their excitement. And, you know, I, I call a, a winnow full of lingonberries a winnow full of happiness because, <laughs> because it just makes, they make people happy. It's fun. It's fun to see our produce. Well, it sure, it sure is beautiful out here. And I, I'm glad you're here because we need... We need a lingonberry source, local. Yes, we do. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much, Leslie. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Boy, I'd sure like to get one of those lingonberry tarts at Buyan Bakery in Seattle. They have Leslie's lingonberries on top of them. But COVID keeps me home. Let's take a musical break. I took piano lessons when I was younger and eventually worked up to a piece by J.S. Bach called Prelude Number 1 in C Major, one of the pieces in the Well-Tempered Clavier, published in 1722. I found a recording of the prelude on Wikipedia, the performer is unknown, and listened for the lyrical arpeggios that waltz up the scale, especially in the beginning. So that's just the beginning of the prelude, but I want to continue with the story. Around 1853, a French Romantic composer, Charles Gounod, was listening to this prelude, and he heard a melody in his head that could be superimposed on a slightly altered version of the prelude. I've heard in music this could be called a descant. His melody was matched with words from a Latin prayer, and the combined piece has come to be called the Ave Maria. I sure enjoyed discovering that Gounod's Ave Maria, which I associate with Christmas time, was in fact an addition to a piano piece I had learned and is now called the Bach Gounod Ave Maria. Here's John Michael, a professor of the cello at Central Washington University, playing this lovely melody over the prelude.
I've always loved the cello. What a magnificent instrument. Now, you might be saying, Oh, hold your horses. That's not the Ave Maria I've been thinking of. And indeed, many other classic composers created an Ave Maria too, such as Brahms and Faure. But it's probably Frank Schubert's very popular Ave Maria you might be thinking of. It was used in the movie Fantasia. Schubert composed this in 1825, and it was called Ellen's Third Song. Schubert was only 28 at the time. It's thought that Schubert wrote the piece based on the German translation of Sir Walter Scott's poem, The Lady of the Lake. Here's Arthur Grimio and Istan Hajdu on violin and piano playing this instrumental version from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum at gardnermuseum.org. Another lovely one, and I'll admit, I sometimes get Schubert's and Bach Gnod's version mixed up in my head. Like the Bach version, the beginning of Schubert's Ave Maria features sweeping arpeggios going up the register. Dun 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 dun.
Now back to Scandinavian food at Christmas time. Here's a story that was recorded for the Scandinavian Hour and published in the Norwegian American a few years back about my daughter and I trying to make krumkake, crumb cakes, those little curled, fragile cones that you eat uh, often around Christmas time. This was not a food I grew up making with my Norwegian grandparents. I had to learn it later in life with my daughter and son. My parents used to get a Christmas tin full of krumkake from my dad's old friend Herbie Magnuson, and I'm embarrassed to say we made short work of that krumkake. All, you know, whatever, 10 of them or 12 of them that were in the tin. I'm embarrassed because I now know that each one of those cones is a labor of love and should be eaten slowly, with appreciation, and not inhaled like a cookie monster. Here's that story. As someone presses play on the cassette player and the Charlie Brown Christmas album starts to turn, the kitchen cupboard is thrown wide. This is a regular Christmas tradition with me and my children. First the music, followed by the archaeological dig to find the krumkaka iron. Deep in the bowels of the cupboard, in the box with the spritzmaker and the other less used or useless items, the Nordic ware krumkaka irons are eventually unearthed. Sonbockel molds, bunt cake pans, bumpy rolling pins, and lefses sticks litter the floor in the kitchen. Since I'm such a sucker, when something distinctly Scandinavian shows up at Goodwill, we have three irons. It's a matter of national pride. I just can't pass one of those up. Then comes the search for the krumkaka roller, that cone-shaped wooden implement we use to reduce burnt fingers. In a pinch, we've used a one-inch dowel, but the rolled cones just aren't, well, cones when we're done. Bad form. So when the cone roller is discovered, it's paraded around the kitchen to the rolling station, a cutting board pulled out from below the counter. As the krumkaka iron is set on the stove, inevitably, someone says, Dad, why can't we use that electric krumkaka thing that the lady at the lodge uses? It's got to be a lot simpler. No, no, that's just not authentic, I say. And basically, it's just not fair either. We undergo this monumental effort to make these delicacies the old way, and here somebody else makes krumkaka effortlessly with some gussied-up version of a modern waffle iron? Nigh tuck. Not us. As someone mixes up the batter, we discuss for the nth time why we're using such-and-such krumkaka recipe this year, because last year's recipe failed to make proper krumkaka. Honestly, there's a zillion recipes out there, including multiple versions across my several Norwegian cookbooks. Is it two, three, or four eggs? Is it a third, a half, or three-quarters cups of butter? Half a cup or one cup of sugar? One or one-half cups of flour, milk or no milk, cardamom, vanilla, or both? Yes, yes, I know that recipes are really about the ratios of butter to eggs, and it all depends on how big a batch you want. But it also depends on how much more you want to tempt fate. I've been told repeatedly, and found it to be strangely true, that making a double batch of a recipe often doesn't turn out the same as doing two separate batches one after another. How come recipes aren't always scalable without causing problems? Another mystery for the Nissa to help us solve. Do real Norwegians have this problem? 
But never mind. Once the batter is poured on the iron and it's shut, the timer's started and we all stare at each other in pensive anxiety until beep, 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 it's time to flip the iron by rotating it on its ball-shaped tip. About now, Vince Guaraldi starts playing Linus and Lucy on the Charlie Brown album, and we start to dance a little until the timer beeps again, and now it's go, 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 rushing over to the rolling station, opening the iron and dumping out the product. My kids, who are always willing to take one for the team, suffer burnt fingers trying desperately to roll the krumkaka before it sets. The first krumkaka is usually too pale and underdone, something like a, a communion wafer. Fortunately, it tastes somewhat better than that, and it's quickly gone for the sake of science. As we pour more batter into the iron, I offer to switch the music to something that might inspire better results, like Cecil Kirchhoff's uh, Stroll in the Yule album. No, don't you dare, Dad. It's got to be Charlie Brown, or the Krumkaka won't turn out. Are we superstitious? Maybe a little. No more than putting dragon's heads on your stave church to scare away evil spirits. At some point, early on, we use too much batter, and it oozes out of the iron into the burner or the gas stove, depending on which year we're talking about. And of course, that prompts a brilliant grease fire, which then sets off the fire alarm. That often coincides with a timer beeping to remove the cooked krumkaka. Quick! Sorry, gotta borrow your stool so I can bop the fire alarm or rip off the lid and extract the battery. The thing is absolutely crazy-making. Why we don't take the battery out before we start is a mystery. It's a regular thing every Christmas time. So is, unfortunately, that grease fire. The second attempt to make a krumkaka usually yields something browner, but so buttery and greasy that it starts to unroll. My kids have to put a weight on it to keep it rolled until it sets. And so, about three hours later, we have nine krumkaka. And so, about three hours later, we have nine krumkaka. Of course, we made 24 krumkaka, four were too pale and had to be eaten. Five of them just wouldn't stay rolled and had to be eaten. Another six we weren't sure about, and so they had to be eaten. The remaining nine reminds me of that Salvador Dali painting with a clock drooping from a tree branch. Would our krumkaka hang limp like that if they unrolled? I'd rather not think about it. Assembled in the circular Christmas tin, lined in wax paper, the cones look kind of lonely. But that becomes a proud Christmas present for somebody. Think of all the work that went into those nine. The recipient had better be grateful. So, should we start again tomorrow and make another 15? No, that's going to have to wait until next year. By the way, does anyone want an old Krumkaka iron? I've got two extras. I'll trade you for an authentic, bulletproof krumkaka recipe. Well, that's our winter solstice Christmas show. This year, 2020, will be marked as one where we can't get together easily with family because of the coronavirus. It's my hope instead that you will get some enjoyment out of this podcast and other music online, on the radio, or some you make yourself. Break out those books and recordings and sing along with Oyule Minglede or Alf Preussen's Musa Visa or whatever else gets your blood pumping on these long nights of the year. This year is perhaps darker than most, but we must trust that the days will get longer and we'll head towards spring as we always do. Listen to Nordic on Tap on your favorite podcast platform 
or at nordicontap.podbean.com. Our show's theme was composed and performed by Daryl Jackson at darryljacksonmusic.com. Look for our upcoming show about the Scandinavian Hour radio show. Write to us at nordicontap at gmail.com. Tell us what you're thinking, what you'd like to see. Until next time on Nordic on Tap, Kuyul Ogot Nitor, Pledliol, Hiva Yulua, and Bura Yavla. Now that the kids are not kids anymore and are all grown up, grown up, grown. My my wife and I have been using a fake one. Oh crap! <clears throat> Excuse me. That's uh, that's Baltic. Crap is Baltic. I, why am I explaining this to you? And maybe there's something you can put. fit. Okay, we're gonna skip that. And it was called Ellen's Dritte Gesant. Yeah, really. Schubert, Schubert, Sherbert, ice cream, Schub, Schubert, Schubert. Sh- what flavor is that? So I had to learn it late in life with my daughter and son. <laughs> That's not right. Late in life? That sounds like I'm a geezer. Buora, buora, boo, boo, buora, buora. I need some Sami lessons.